We have come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 this morning. Last week, in particular, we were dealing with verses 4, to, 4 through 8, and it's important to the text this morning to remember this. We saw that God has a household, and we are God's household. That household is organic. It is a living organism. It is not inanimate. It is not a building. It is not a club. It is not a physical structure or organization, though often the church is spoken of that way or thought of that way. And we saw as we studied in this text last week that the keys to the building, if you will, was first of all the cornerstone. And that cornerstone, and you can read, uh, read over what I just read to you a moment ago in those verses. I will not read them again, verses 4 to 8. But you will see that the key is the cornerstone, and that is Jesus Christ, as we studied last week. And he is a living stone. He is not dead. We are serving a risen Savior. And we have a living Savior that we serve, and he is the cornerstone to the whole structure of the organism. Everything is centered on him. And then it is believers who are the building blocks, the stones, the living stones, as it says in that text. That is believers, those who have come through faith to Christ, make up the organism, not an organization, but the organism, and it is we, living people, who God has saved, who have been brought to faith in Christ, who make up the organism. And that is part of God's household. In fact, the structure is called God's household or the church. And we need to be careful because, again, as I said last week, oftentimes people think of a physical structure when they think of the, the church itself. So we are a living organism made up of living people. We are the living stones. We saw that as part of the building and that the choice cornerstone by God's choice is Jesus Christ. And so we have this structure that is existing today that is actually universal. But we also saw in our text last week that that cornerstone has been rejected. There are those who have not and still today will not and in the future as long as the Lord tarries will continue not to come by faith to the cornerstone, will not place their faith in Christ. <clears throat> and specifically, as we looked at it last week, to the Jews, the message of the cross of Calvary, the message of the Messiah, is a stumbling block because they were looking for somebody specifically at the Lord's time to deliver them from the Roman government. He did not fit their style. He did not fit what they were looking for by way of a Messiah, though they had the whole Old Testament. So for them, he did not meet their expectations and for many, and particularly as a whole, there's always a remnant, but the Jews saw the cornerstone as a stumbling block. They could not get over that. To the Gentiles, the concept of the cross, the concept of salvation through Christ, the concept of him being the precious cornerstone is foolishness. It's offensive in our text. It's offensive to them. They do not understand it. It does not make sense to them logically even as well and so we concluded as we were going through that that while we have this living organism and we are part of it still as we present the gospel we need to realize as we present Christ that that is what is offensive 
to the Gentile, that is what is the stumbling block to the Jew. Now we come to the believers in verses 9 and 10 in the context and our privileges <clears throat> that are mentioned in these particular verses. And you'll notice as we pick it up in verse 9 right away that we see the work of God in the believers. And you have the contrast immediately, verse 9. But that's in contrast to the Jews and the Gentiles who saw it offensive <clears throat> and who stumbled over the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes back to verse 8. And you'll notice, by the way, that they were disobedient to the word of God. They would not accept what God had given as the message in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come into verse 9, and in contrast to the unbeliever, he says, but you. <clears throat> and that's a personal pronoun. It is a plural pronoun. He is talking about believers as an entirety, not anyone in particular. He is talking in the plural there. That is, the believers, in contrast to the unbelievers, here are five privileges that he names here in this text that are ours, that are precious, and we should understand them as being precious. Let me name them. I'm going to go into some background so we understand them, and then uh, we will see that the whole, what's the whole point of even mentioning this in this particular text. So the five privileges that you can look at him as he mentions them to us, Believers are referred to as a chosen race, number one. Number two, they refer, we are referred to as a royal priesthood. Thirdly, as a holy nation. Fourth, we are a people of God's own possession. And then the fifth one is in the last verse, we have received the mercy of God. Those are five things that are related to believers that the unbeliever does not have. They don't have that benefit. Now, it's fine to say these things, chosen race, royal priesthood. Great. First of all, but what does that mean? And the other thing is I read the text this morning to you out of Exodus purposely. Because if you know a little bit about the scriptures, you would probably take a step back, as I did even in my study, and say, wait a minute. These things that you are saying about the believers in the context, in contrast, and remember, these are believers that Peter is writing to who are facing everyday trials and indeed persecution. And he's trying to encourage them in this. But I thought these were written in relationship to the nation of Israel, specifically to the Jews. I thought they were a holy nation. I thought they were the people of God's own possession. In fact, didn't you just read that in Exodus chapter 19, Pastor Dan? So I think we need to understand to really grasp the truth and just the joy of what this should mean to us and how it fits in and what is the whole point of saying this to them. Because after this, uh, beginning next week in verse 11, he's going to unpack the practicality of it as he goes through the remainder of this book of First Peter. So bear with me a moment as we go into, in capsule form, a history that I think will help you and I to understand what he means when he says that we, believers today, 2014, those who have trusted in Christ, we are a holy priesthood. We are a royal uh, a priesthood, I should say, a chosen race. What does all of that mean, and how is that to be unpacked in my life? To go back, you really need to, and you don't need to turn to all of this because of Communion Sunday especially, we won't have the time. We need to begin with the sovereignty of God. 
We know that our Bibles open up with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and, heavens and the earth. He created it all. And if you don't understand that and don't grasp that, we're in trouble already. And you might take that for granted, but I had someone recently discussing that with me about whether or not God's sovereignty has the right to do anything. God has the right to do anything he wants. Everything that's here and every one that is here is a result of the sovereignty of God. In fact, Psalm 24, verse 1, says that he owns the earth and all that it contains so that nothing's left out. God is sovereign. Fine. What does that mean? Well, we then move into the creation of man. We're only here because of God. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 23, we find out that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then as part of his unique creation, he created man in the image and likeness of God. Now we need to just, although that's very fundamental and many of the things will be for a few moments to most of you, you need to go back to that and remember the fact that when God created man in his image and likeness, man enjoyed being in the presence of God. Man enjoyed no death. Man enjoyed to be with the animal life and all of his creation and everything was in harmony. There was no sin. And God has always looked, even in his first instruction to Adam and Adam and Eve, he's just simply looked for man to obey him and believe him and act by faith in what God is instructing him to do as he walked with him. But as we all know, by the time you come to Genesis chapter 3, man fails. Given one restriction and he fails. What does that mean? Sin entered into the world. Romans says that by one man, sin entered into the world. How is that all going to play out? Stay with me. Because sin enters into the world, man has to leave the presence of God. And all of a sudden, that relationship with God is not that close. He has to be out of his presence. God being holy, man being unholy. And man is basically allowed, though he's given some instruction to God to go on. But by the time you come to Genesis chapter 6, we meet something very important. Because when you come to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, we find out that the wickedness of man was great. And every, it's hard for us to grab this, but it's true. Every intent and thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. Now, I know we go around in a society that says man is basically good. That's not the picture that you get in Genesis chapter 6. By the time man has fallen and is left on his own, in a sense to just go about, do what he, he reaches the point that God says he, in his heart, basically looks at creation and he was hurting in that he wished it wasn't even created, in a sense. God was grieving over what had happened. Now, it's important for us to remember this. Again, with God's sovereignty, at that point, there isn't anyone, no one, deserves the grace of God. No one. All, and it's the same thing we find in the New Testament. All men are sin, sinners and have come short of the glory of God. And we are all dependent upon God's sovereignty and God's mercy. By the time we move on a little bit further in Genesis, we find another very important principle. Remember, no one deserves the grace of God. 
You don't, in case you think you do. But then when you move on just a little bit further, we find this in Genesis 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And by God's perfect choice, God has Noah and his family and preserves them. Did Noah deserve it? No. But he was given grace by God. And we know we go all the way back there and you get this flood that takes place and Noah is preserved and now Noah is to proclaim his God as everyone else is destroyed to those afterwards. But what happens? Again, man goes through the cycle of all of his sin. And I move us fast quickly to Genesis 12. And what we find is God takes one man by God's choice. And he takes Abraham. Did Abraham deserve it? No. But by God's choice, he takes Abraham and he says in Genesis chapter 12, let me give you a synopsis, I will make of you a great name, a great nation, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed simply because God's sovereignly in control and he has chosen Abraham. And he wants Abraham basically, we use the term today, to be a witness for him. Where does that go? You know what happens. Out of that nation comes the nation of Israel. Out of that man, excuse me. And what I read, and I won't go back there, you can if you want, but in Exodus chapter 19, by God's sovereign choice, because all of the nations, remember way back to Genesis 6, why do they bring that up? Sin, it's running rampant. And all the nations of the world basically don't want anything to do with God. And God selects Abraham. And then through him, he selects Israel. Why? Let me go back to one verse with you. Go to Deuteronomy 7, just for a second. I want you to see this because it will relate to us as well. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. He says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, speaking of the nation of Israel here, because the nation's now been formed. He did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. And I'll stop right there. God chose the nation of Israel. They came out and were to be the people of God. And by simply by God's choice, just like he chose Noah, just like he chose Adam, just like he chose uh, Abraham, and now he chooses the nation of Israel, not because of their goodness, not because of their greatness, not because of who they were, simply because God chose them. But why did he choose? Why is Israel chosen and why were they to be a peculiar nation? Why were they to be a royal priesthood? Why, why, why? Go with me to Isaiah 43. Important that you see this before we get to us. Isaiah 43, turn there with me. Now actually it's most of the chapter but we're not gonna have time to read it all. But let, allow me to read a little bit here. Watch, follow along. Isaiah 43 beginning in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. These are songs that we sing. He's talking to Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the earth, give them up, and to the south, do not hold me back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And let me go move ahead a little bit. Why? I want to get down to this. Go down to verse 10. You can read the stuff in between. But in verse 10, he says, you are my witnesses. Watch. Declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen so that, here it is, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God form and there will not be none after me. I, even I am the Lord, there is no Savior. By the way, can you see you don't have to go to your New Testament to find out there's only one Savior? Only one God? Only one Redeemer? Now let's go on. I, even I, the Lord, there is no Savior besides me. Verse 12, it is I who have declared and, and, and saved and proclaimed there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God even from eternity I am he, and there is, no, is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. Bottom line, what is this? Israel was the chosen people of God to do what? To be a witness to the living God. Israel was supposed to, according to verse 10 particularly, first of all, know God and grow in their knowledge of God. They were to serve and obey God. And they were the chosen people to represent God, the one true living God, to this world. What's the bottom line? They failed. And I won't read it, but if you get just down in chapter 43 alone, beginning of verse 22, let me just read that part. Yet you have not called on me. And you can read it all the way to verse 28. The bottom line, we know what it is. Israel failed. They were the chosen people of God. They were a royal uh, priesthood. They were the possession of God. And Moses, you know, the wilderness wanderings. The judges failed. The kings failed. The prophets gave the messages. And throughout history, they failed till it comes to a climax when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and they won't believe him as a nation. And by the time you come to Matthew 23, you can turn to it on your own. The Lord is weeping over the nation. How many times have I tried to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks? And you would not. And even as he came on the scene as the Messiah, as a nation, they have rejected him. The prophets, the apostles, and all the messages they gave. Why is that important? Because the Gentiles did not have any of that. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This will help us in our understanding of Peter. Ephesians chapter 2.
In Ephesians, the second chapter, remember verses 11 through 13 from last week? I wanted you to see them again. Look. Therefore, remember that formerly, he's talking to believers now, but watch this. You were Gentiles in the flesh. What does that mean? Who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by human hands. Verse 12. Remember, here it is, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then he goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, have been brought near, how by the blood of Christ we just celebrated that. But what I want you to grasp is, according to Romans as well, these were sinners, enemies, they didn't have the covenants. Gentiles didn't have the covenants. They didn't have the laws. They didn't have the promises. They were not part of what was given to the nation of Israel. But when you go to Acts chapter 13, something very significant happened. Go with me to Acts 13. Two more passages, then we'll get back to Peter. Acts 13. Stay with me. You come into Acts chapter 13. Before this, the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended. He sends his apostles forth to give the message. And basically, they go to the nation of Israel with the message. Why? They're the people of God. They're the people that are supposed to be representing him. And now, while before Acts chapter 13, you've got the incident of Cornelius, this is the primary change in verse 46 of chapter 13. What happens is Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Who? The Jews. Since re you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many, very important, has been appointed to eternal life, that's choice, believed. What happened? The message went to the Jews who were supposed to be representing Christ to the world. They still refused. And now the message goes to the Gentiles. How does that help us to fit in? One more text. Go with me to Romans 11. Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. And I realize I'm going a little quick this morning. It'd be worth reading Romans 9, 10, and 11, those entire chapters where Paul is even appealing to the nation of Israel. But I want you to grasp the meat of it right now. Because what happens is... The Lord is going to use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous because they were supposed to know him. But I think what we really need to get is get down to verse 15 of Romans 11. It says this, For if their rejection, that is Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now watch this. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, the branches are, are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, he's talking to Gentiles, were grafted in among them and became, very important, watch, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. What is that? And you can go on and read the rest of the text. 
Probably what we should do is jump down to verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will be wise in your own estimation, that the partial hardening happened hardening has happened to the Israel, to Israel, the Jews. Why? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is going on? We were Gentiles, still are, in that sense, total alienation from the promises of God and the life of God. Israel was the chosen nation that was to be a witness to the world. They were to tell others about the one true living God. They wanted nothing to do with the Messiah. They wanted nothing. They basically failed to be the witness that they should have been. There's always been a small remnant. But as a whole, they have failed. And what happened? God's message of the gospel went to the Gentiles. And what we call the church, this organism that is there, we have now entered into the promises that were given to the nation of Israel as well. We get the benefits of the root. We have been grafted in. So that now the promises that were for Israel, they are our benefit as well. What benefit? The ones you're reading about in 1 Peter chapter 2. What we see is we now benefit. Now, I will just make a comment on this. We don't replace Israel. In fact, the text that I just read, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. When God has brought to salvation the last Gentile in the church, he will focus his attention back on the nation of Israel. Some don't see it that way, but it's very clear, just as it was in the beginning. And he will turn his attention. But right now, Christ is building his church. And as he's building his church, you and I come and we hear the gospel message, and Christ is proclaimed. To the Jews, it's still a stumbling block. They don't see it. And they are hearing through the voice of Gentiles about their own Savior. And we are receiving the benefits also that were promised to Israel, which they will enjoy. And one day as a nation will repent when you look to the book of Revelation. But right now we're grafted in in this organism called the living church. The church of Jesus Christ is enjoying the same privileges that they had. So when you come to verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, you're a chosen race. I thought Israel was. Yes. But they have failed God. They have not followed through. Now, God doesn't totally desert them, but we now are having the same benefits because we've been grafted in to the benefits. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Let me tell you a couple of things about these things because I really want to get to what it should mean to us. We're a chosen race. Salvation is still by God's grace, folks. Just like Noah was selected, just like Abraham was selected, just like the nation of Israel was selected, so is true with anyone who's come to Christ. It's because God's worked in our heart. And God changed our heart and brought us to himself, and election is involved. I read it in Acts chapter 13. As many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. It's that simple. We are a chosen race. We don't deserve it. We're not better than them. It's not because of who I am. We're a royal priesthood. Let me just give you this essence of the, of the priesthood. Back in the Old Testament, there was that system under Aaron, and only the high priest could go in once a year before the Holy of Holies. And the priests were interceding for the people 
We are now able to go into the presence of God. Why? Because according to Timothy, we have one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. And we've believed on him. We don't need a priest. We don't need a rabbi. You don't need a minister. You don't need somebody ordained to bring you to Christ at all. We can go directly to God in prayer. We can go right into his presence and come boldly, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done for us. And we're a royal priesthood. Uh, we don't need those mediators. We're a holy nation. That is, we are the people of God now. It's known as the church. We are God's precious and important possession. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, remember verses 18 and 19? Take a look at them. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, unblemished and, uns and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. We are God's own possession. It also says that in Ephesians chapter 1. Or before the foundation of the world, that was God's plan. We have received the mercy of God. What greater text to look to than Ephesians chapter 2, and I won't turn there, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love with which he loved us, that started off in that chapter, we were dead in trespasses and sins, in God's marvelous mercy. If you're a believer today, you've received the mercy of God by the grace of God. And now we receive the benefits of being a royal priesthood, not because we're any better. The, a holy nation and a chosen race. But why? Here's what I want you to get this morning. What's the whole purpose of this? It's in verse 9. Look at it. Here it is. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. For you were once not a people. But now, you're the people of God. What is it? You see, Israel missed it. Adam missed it. Noah was given grace. And as it went on beyond him, the people continued to miss it. And Israel, while being called a holy nation, while they were the possession of God, they were supposed to be a witness to everyone around them of the excellencies of God's grace. They were to have from their lips coming forth praise to the one true living God, not the many gods that are around them. And they didn't do it because they didn't walk with God. We are living in a world in which there are many gods and many religions, plural. We have the truth. You say, yeah, I'm a believer, great. You're called and you're, you're part of the family of God, great. You don't need someone to intercede because you're a royal priesthood. Tremendous. You're receiving the same benefits that Israel got as being the people of God because you've been grafted in. Terrific. And what are we doing? Are we failing like they did? Are we displaying? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing, and that is proclaiming the excellencies of him? Last week's message, I asked you to think about this week and to spend the week. Remember we talked about spiritual praises that we're to be giving? What is that? A life of thanksgiving. And I challenge you this week to be thinking about 
the things that you ought to be thankful for because you belong to Christ. Now I challenge myself and you. What in the world are we proclaiming to the world? We talk about, we talk about the love of Christ. Remember the context. How are we going to display and talk about the excellencies? Think of the context of what we've studied just in the first chapter in this one. What is it? Are we desiring the word of God? That's chapter 2, verse 2, remember? As newborn babes, he doesn't say anything other than to long for it. There are people professing Christ that don't even have an interest in reading the word of God. Why do we come here? We should be longing for the word of God. Why do you have devotions? Because somebody told me, no, because we desire like an infant to get that spiritual milk. What else? Chapter 1, verse 22, we've learned it. What do we mean the excellencies of God? We are to love the brethren in sincerity, not just talk about it. Everybody can talk about loving the brethren, and we're supposed to be known by our love. And as I've already exposited to you, as we've gone through the text, what the world ends up seeing is nothing but division, schism, and complaining among believers. And he started off chapter 2 with that very thing. Get rid of malice. Get rid of hypocrisy. Get rid of slander. Shouldn't even be named once among a believer. And yet believers are filled with it. That's not proclaiming the excellencies of God. Proclaiming the excellencies of God and his power and his marvelous grace is I was once a sinner, now I'm saved, and it's all by the grace of God. I can go before the throne of grace because of what he's done. You need a savior? You're downhearted? You're weighed down heavy laden? Come unto the savior. That's Matthew chapter 11. We had to live holy lives. That was chapter 1, verses 14 through 21. Why? Because Not because somebody gave us a bunch of rules. It's because our Savior is holy. That's why Adam was cast out. That's why Israel's rejected. They couldn't get it. But by God's grace, they'll be grafted back in. And as we also saw, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, forward of this book, we are to be proclaiming the good news to the world. We are God's representatives. <clears throat> so it's great to be called a chosen race. It's great to be called a royal priesthood. It's great to be called a nation, a people of his own possession. And it is applied to believers there in verse 8. It's contrasted to the unbelievers. But we're, that's been done for a purpose so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. How much do we even talk about our Savior? When is the last time, don't answer out loud, you even gave answer to prayer and told somebody about it all when you were in a conversation were bold enough to turn around and mention the name of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? And we say we're proclaiming the excellencies of God? The world's looking for mercy. The world's looking to know the one true living God with all the stuff that's going on. The world's panicking over the economy. Right now in the United States of America, including believers, they're panicking over Ebola. Don't you know the Savior? Don't you know that you're in his hands and you are not going to go out of this world until he says so anyway? 
And don't you know, just like the Lord came in and was about his father's business, we ought to be about the father's business of proclaiming the excellencies of God? I don't need to fear that. Why? Do I want to be stupid? No. But I know, as the Psalms and Proverbs both say, when I lay down my head at in night and I get up in the morning, the only reason is, is because God watched over me. And I can proclaim the excellencies. You got a job, you got health, all of the things that God is doing. And remember, Peter is writing to those who were suffering even death, going to suffer death. And he says, I want you to proclaim in the midst, wait till we get to next week, in the midst of that society who the one true living God is. And beginning in verse 11, he is going to unpack through the remainder of the chapter how those excellencies are to be proclaimed to government, on your job, in your marriages. He's going to unpack that when he talks about how we are to behave and that we are going to suffer persecution and how we ought to behave in the midst of that when people react. But it begins with our understanding as to who we are. I have to stop. But this morning, I think it was appropriate that communion came today and the message just how it fell. Because we were once darkness. Now we've been called to God's marvelous light by his mercy. And everything that we did this morning is representative, especially this communion time, it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we of all people who are now, some of those titles that we just looked at, the people of God ought to be proclaiming to this world. We are, according to Philippians, we are the light in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. And in there we should be proclaiming the excellencies of the knowledge of God because we're growing in our knowledge of him and we want others to know him. It's not a ritual. It's a life. May God help us to live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the time that we've spent together today. I thank you for the singing. I thank you for the fellowship time, one with another. And Father, I start with myself. I know that many times we fail and I fail to be the people that we should be. Yes, we are secure in Christ. We thank you that we've received your mercy, but help us from our lips to proclaim to others the excellencies of who you are in what you've done in what you can do for them and how you still are in control. And I pray, Father, that it would fill joy with our hearts to remember that you've taken us from darkness to light, from death unto life, and help us to live with a cheerful heart, live with joy in our hearts as we should, knowing we belong to Christ. And help us to enjoy one another. Help us to enjoy the fellowship that we should as believers, to encourage one another as we continue to proclaim those excellencies. Help us to do it throughout the week. I pray that you'd open up the understanding of those who don't know Christ, that they might understand what your love is, and they might come to the cross of Calvary and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.